Canucks Central Monday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah with you in the Kintec studio. Canucks Central, a presentation of Grip Auto Entire. Quality service you can trust and 14 locations to serve you. Coming up, Frank Saravalli is going to join us. Uh, we're going to get a scouting report later on from Boston and Carolina on the uh, newest Vancouver Canucks, mm-hmm. Jack Studnika and Ethan Bear. And also uh, Don Taylor will join us, as he always does on a Monday. Locked and loaded on this Monday for you. And it's uh, the most positive Monday show we've had in a while, Sam. Yeah. Because we got a couple of wins. We do. We get a couple of wins. Two wins for the Vancouver Canucks. Um, we have some news, of course, or for the broadcast rights for the next 10 years. So we got that going. So, I mean, yeah, it's a positive news day here. And can the Canucks keep the good vibes going? Uh, 10 more years of uh, Rogers Arena yep. in uh, Rogers Arena. 10 more years of uh, regional rights being with Sportsnet on television. And 10 more years of uh, Sportsnet broadcasting the radio games for the yes, Vancouver Canucks. Absolutely. It's fantastic. And like Jeffro asks the question on our Dunbar Lumber text inbox, does the new deal mean I get to text you guys for the next 10 years? <laughs> yes, it does indeed mean that. Yes, as much as you want, Jeffro. Uh, all the time. If you if you wish. Well, yeah, exactly. So 650, 650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. So 10 more years, and uh, hopefully there'll be a lot of wins in these 10 years. But yeah, the good thing is uh, we will be outlasting the Oliver Ekman Larson yes. and JT Miller contract. <laughs> It'll be funny to see what the Canucks uh, roster looks like <laughs> 10 years from now. Yeah. Um, you know, I, okay. So Friday night against Pittsburgh, it's... About as good a performance we've seen from the Canucks Oh yeah, this year. Mm-hmm. And because of the way the season has gone, Sat, you know, part of me is like, man, the Canucks played really well. And then there is, yeah, well, Pittsburgh didn't really play all that well. But it takes away credit from the Canucks keeping the middle of the ice uh, hard to get to for yeah. Pittsburgh. And even though the shot clock turned into Pittsburgh's favor heavily in that third period, you know, they really didn't penetrate the middle of the ice. That's sort of the blueprint you want to see from the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, and you can't take anything away from that game, honestly. I mean, yeah, you can say the the Pens weren't good enough. So what? They had a day in between. Yeah. You know, I I, I don't have time for that. You know, the Canucks played a good two game. days off while the Canucks were traveling and playing in Seattle the night before. And they played back-to-back nights, came in, and they played well, and they won the game. They deserved it. And... Those are the types of games you need to see if you want to build confidence about, okay, let, let's see if we can get back to stability. Let's stabilize this. Let's see if we can, you know, make it a bit of a push after the 20-game mark. Can we, you know, not be lost and gone like we were last season by the 2025-game mark? Then these next four or five games are going to determine that. And the only way you feel good about it potentially happening is if they win and they show some signs of things coming together. And an optimist would look at that Pittsburgh game and say, you play that way? Mm-hmm. You're probably going to win a bunch of games, especially coming up right now. And they win three more games. They're back to the 500 mark. And it's funny because we, you know, we'll, t- we'll talk to Frank coming up and, you know, people people are talking about how the world is burning down in Toronto. I mean, they have 10 points in 10 games. They're 500. Yeah. I mean, they're a three or four game winning streak from nobody worrying about it anymore. Yeah. The Canucks have to win three just to get to that point where it's like, you know, you can kind of be alive. But if they play the way they did against against Pittsburgh and you look at their next four to five games... Like this is your chance here to stabilize things, maybe even before the twenty game mark. It gets tougher then too. I mean, the opponents get tougher as it goes on. If you look at the next five to six games, you play well, 
there's a chance you claw back and and don't look like you're out of it anymore. You know, there was the thing that really stuck out for me in the Pittsburgh game. It it felt like the Canucks had a top six again, and it it didn't rely so much on Pedersen to drive mm-hmm. play at five on five because the Miller, Horvat, and Garland line felt really dangerous. And I felt Garland was a big part of that, but also it was Miller's best game. Like, I don't know if he just was more up to match up hard mm-hmm. against Sidney Crosby all night, but that was the most engaged I'd seen JT Miller at both ends of the rink all season. Maybe well, it had some... Yeah. Like a handful of scoring chances the whole game. Yeah. It, it was it was a really really strong performance, and I wonder you know how much that line continues to play together. Brock Besser is on his way to returning. Uh, we know Quinn Hughes is likely back tomorrow, and you have the new player Jack Stadnika to uh, work into the lineup. But you know that that line, I was really impressed with with how that line played, and I think that that's ultimately what this team has needed is J T Miller to be J T Miller a little bit more again. Yeah. And it started Thursday in Seattle. He had the two goals in Carolina. Like it's, it was a really good week for JT Miller, and he needs to build off that. Well, he 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 does, and he wasn't a liability out there. We've seen him be a liability in the past defensively. That wasn't the case. And the thing I took away the most was they were able to control the game against mm-hmm. a good opponent, and that's something they haven't shown an ability to do. And when you look at their games coming up here, the Devils are not going to be easy. Then Anaheim, you can probably beat. Nashville's not easy. Ottawa's spicy, but a very beatable team. And same thing with the Montreal Canadiens. You find a way to beat New Jersey. Yeah. You can go on a little bit of a mini run here before the schedule gets a bit tough. You have Toronto and Boston and back-to-back nights, and you finish up the rope trip in Buffalo. That's not easy. But before you do that and play the Kings and Vegas and Colorado— you can kind of get yourself to a point where that stretch of games from Toronto to Colorado, those you know six games, which look pretty daunting, if you get yourself to 500 or just above, maybe you have some confidence hitting that stretch and maybe you find a way to hold your own, right? But you really have to make hay, hay here, right? I look at these next few games and I'm like, you probably got to win, what, four or five of these next six? I, uh, I think back a lot to, to how Boudreaux uh, managed it last year. You got to win the week. Yeah. You know, well, win, win the, two of three this week. Doesn't matter which ones you win. Just win two of three this week. And then you got to win two or three the week after and win two or three the, the week afterwards. Then you're essentially four and four and two over those next few games. And you're that much closer to 500. Yeah. And if they if they do that next little bit, then you're kind of going to get back to it. You yeah. know, and I know Ross and Richmond mentioned in our text inbox, look, the run last year, they had eight wins when Boudreaux took over. And the whole is bigger to start the year through nine games. But the gap's not as big. I mean, they had to win. They had to reel off like seven games in a row just to get to 500. You know yeah. what I mean? They had to really just get to a point where they were just respectable again. That was that was how big that hole was for that team. But this year, it's not quite as big, but it can slip away from you really, really quickly. I can't overstate how big these next two weeks are. Yeah. You know, because if, you're, if you actually lose two out of three these next two weeks... It, it's really hard to convince yourself you're going to be able to make it happen when your stretch gets even harder, right? But with the way they played the last game, you find a way to beat the Devils, and all of a sudden, maybe you do go on a bit of a mini run. So today was a really interesting day. Um, Elliot Friedman had some interesting comments on the Canucks on 32 Thoughts, how um, you know Jim Rutherford and, and the Canucks front office... Uh, <laughs> 
I don't know if threatened is is maybe the right word, but there was a lot being said about, you know, maybe uh, potentially putting a, a player on waivers yeah. and saying, you know what, this is this is not about changing the coach. If if this continues, we're going to have to really seriously look at, at changing up this core. And it coincides with the Canucks following that up, getting a couple of wins to close the week and their best performance of the season quite easily against Pittsburgh. As much as like that's become a part of the conversation, Sat, I do feel as though the win in Seattle was had more to do with the performance against Pittsburgh than anything else. It gave. I mean, they they weren't great against Seattle. No, they found a way to they, win. They, they, they just battled. They yes. battled, but they found a way to win that game. They had decent stretches in the game, but you know we've seen them have decent stretches in other games. But they just they had to just claw out that win any way they could. Like Bruce mentioned, they looked like a loser team after that. They looked yes. like we finally got through that big hurdle. They felt like a loser team, a loser team after. Well, they were a loser team <laughs> until they became a loser team by winning a hockey game. So for sure, I mean, you don't win any games yes. f- first seven. I can imagine you're not going to have a ton of confidence, you even when you have yeah. And they didn't look tight at all against the Pittsburgh Penguins. I know Mike, Mike at Latner sent us a message as well and said, don't underscore what um, Luke Shen did early in that game with the physicality he's brought, but also how engaged he's been. I know, you know, you look at how tough they were against Seattle. Did that set the tone in that game? You look at, you know, how much more physical the, your game's been since that point on. They looked like a team that received that, heard a message, and they received the message, and they played like they were pissed off about that message. Yeah, <sighs> And, and I do think, you know, that the start of that game in, in Seattle uh, played a part in that too. Sticking up for your teammates, Mr. Underrated, Tanner Pearson did it. And then JT Miller fights, Bo Horvat was about to fight. Oliver ekman Larson is uh, making uh, Seattle players flinch at the end of the game. <laughs> you know, um, it, it, they just, they showed more of a togetherness, right? And, and resolve in each other to find that win. And then it showed up in the game against Pittsburgh. So those are all things that I think mattered very much. Tomorrow's not going to be easy. The rest of this week is not going to be easy. But they are getting healthier now, Sad. Yes. So this is the interesting part. Hughes comes back. They add Jack Studnika. He was uh, and is lining up at third-line center. We saw Ethan Bear play alongside mm-hmm. Riley Stillman today at practice. And Besser was an extra as he is getting closer to return. So... This now is becoming a question again of how do you optimize this Canucks lineup? Well, number, the first thing you do is uh, you run around excitedly because Quinn Hughes is back <laughs> and you just insert him next to Luke Shen, right? I mean, that, I, think, I think that's the first thing you do and you put him and Shen together. And Shen's played so well, and to Mike and Ladner's point, he's been terrific, you know, and not just from, you know, a leadership, physical standpoint. He's been legitimately good. Yes. You know, like he has, what, four, four or five points on the season now? Like he's been one of their better defensemen of joining the rush and making breakout passes, getting zone exits. He's, he's been he's been legitimately excellent this season, Luke Shen has. So I think you, you don't worry about it at all. Him and Hughes go back together, probably keep OEL and Myers together. Do they... Yeah. Do they play Burroughs and uh, and Rathbone, or are they going to throw Stillman and Ethan Bear out there? And we we spoke about it on the post game show. And usually, you don't mess with a winning lineup when you mm-hmm. haven't won at all. You won two games in a row. Burroughs has been been fantastic. Rathbone played well. I thought it was interesting. 
the organization sent Guillaume Brisebois down because Rat because um, Hughes is being activated, and they had to do something because of the, like, the corresponding yeah. cap move. But Brisebois played more than Rathbone did in the last game, and management's like, "No, Brisebois, you're going down." <laughs> and so at least you can't play him well, over Brisebois Rathbone. Brisebois legitimately played well Friday. He did, and we criticized his game against Seattle. Two of the goals were on him, and the two mistakes he made. He was really good against Pittsburgh, absolutely. But that's the big question. Do you go with the Stillman-Bear pair, or do you just go back with the winning lineup and, and throw Rathbone and Burroughs out there? I would throw Rathbone and Burroughs out there. I like the way Rathbone played. I like yeah. the way Burroughs played. Stillman, I haven't been impressed with how he's played when he has played, and he's coming off an injury. I'm all for Ethan Bear getting a chance. He just got in here. And yeah, maybe you can talk me into him playing over Burroughs or something. But I'd almost be like, let's go with the same lineup. You guys sit a game, and we'll try to get Ethan Bear into the lineup on Thursday. See, that would be... Yeah, that's probably the easiest way to go about it. You know, you've just won two in a row. Let's see Rathbone and, and Burroughs together. But this the thing about the Bear acquisition is, like, you very clearly have an odd man out on defense. Yes. And with how Boudreaux has deployed Jack Rathbone, it's it's hard to think that it won't be Jack Rathbone. And Burroughs has played the left side. It's easy for Burroughs to stay in the lineup and switch over. But it's interesting, based on practice today, they kept Burroughs and Rathbone together and they kept yeah. Stillman and Bear together, which would suggest, and they can change tomorrow, of course, but it would suggest one of those pairs is playing. Because if you're looking at maybe playing one of those guys with the other guy, then mm-hmm. why wouldn't you put those guys together during practice? Well, and you could easily make the argument like, hey, Ethan Bear hasn't played yet this season, so just like... Let him get up to speed. Let him get and to know the tough, system. It's a tough New Jersey team coming up. A They're really fast. tough New Jersey team. They won a bunch of games in a row and everything like that. And these are critical games. It sounds ridiculous. It's game number 10 on the season. But as we kind of outline how important it is by the 20 game mark Every to game be is around 500, because of the hole they, they built themselves or they dug themselves, these games are absolutely critical. Part of me loves it because we had high stakes game early in the season. It gets me excited for the game against yep. the Devils, especially also on Thursday coming up. Like I'm excited for these games and there was a lot at stake, it seems like. But I kind of like the way they play and I wouldn't mess with the defense too much. The interesting one is Brock Besser because I think Besser is rearing. Like I think he would love to play tomorrow. Yeah. I think it comes down to whether they want to throw him out there yet or not and maybe give him an extra day or so give him an extra day to get back into the lineup but they are willing to get Jack Stadnika into the lineup that quickly I, th- I think the big thing for that is you're you're playing Horvat and Miller together yeah who's playing center right now yeah Lazar's out so I think now you got Stadnika and I think you want to give him a chance right away to play down the middle and see what you have and you're giving a couple of good wingers right off the bo- right off the hop I know Marcus and Gibson's mentions don't call him Mr underrated he's Mr. Average Tanner Pearson that's Marcus and Gibson's but uh, to your point like he's still a good decent player and I mean he's going to be on a line with him and the other guy's probably going to be Niels Hoaglander so that's a line with Studnika he has a couple wingers that go that can play a safe game generally uh, Hoaglander can help with the four check and stuff like that you're giving him a chance right away to see if he can handle a third line role so is it just me or does Besser like Okay, I know Besser as a player, he's a 60 plus point guy, at least can be. Uh, will flirt with 30 goals. I said it at the start of the year. I think he can still get there, even with the injury that he had in training camp. Um, but him coming back into this lineup with Miller moving to the wing does feel a little bit like, hey, where do we put Brock now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and and it 
like it has to mean that Miller eventually moves back to center, doesn't it? I think it comes down to how well Horvat and Miller can keep playing. It comes down to how Stadnika plays. I think with the way the season started, I think they'd rather keep Miller for now on the wing as long as possible and see if they can, you know, keep him there and and really load things up because those two guys have been going well together now, Horvat and Miller for the most part and you need to get some sort of a difference-making line outside of the Pedersen line. So I can see them wanting to keep those guys together because the easy thing would have been to just throw Miller back down the middle again. Yeah. I think the fact they're not doing it right away is because they want to give that some more time. It comes down to Stadnika. Can he handle it or not? If he can't, you're going to have no choice. Lazar's out for the next little while. You're going to have no choice but to throw Miller down. But now you're in a position, especially with Kuzmenko, Scored mm-hmm. a couple goals recently. He's up to six points on the season. He looks a lot better now. Mikhaev's playing really well. And obviously, look at Garland's been going really well too. And he's playing with Horvat and Miller. I don't see a spot right now for, for Brock Besser in your top six if those are your top six lines. I think you would have to probably throw him onto that line on the fourth line and, and limit his minutes somewhat. Because if you're putting Studnika out there, I mean, eventually... That's I an probably, expensive fourth liner, man. <laughs> I think what ends up... Well, yeah, but I mean, those two lines probably play the same amount of minutes. Yeah, My guess would be at even strength. But you could also just throw Besser with Studnika and uh, Pearson and just throw Hoaglander onto on your fourth, fourth line, line or just ultimately just scratch Neil's Hoaglander. But, you know, you're, you're going to make room for Hughes, Bear, and Besser. I wonder if they make, make those guys wait until Thursday. It's fascinating thinking about all of this, and it coincides with the comment that Rutherford had in The Athletic mm-hmm. calling J.T. Miller a two-positional player. <laughs> First time I've, year, I've heard that term, by the way, two-positional player. That's great. Um, <laughs> look, I don't think anybody is who, who really wanted that contract to get signed is, dub, like, is having a double-take on the contract, but... It does matter to me, at least, where Miller at least plays for the next few years, the majority of the time. It does. I mean, to me, ultimately, it's about how big of an impact can you make as a player. Yeah. If his impact's going to be greater playing wing than it is playing center, even though center is a more valuable position, then just keep him on the wing. It comes down to how you bring the best overall value to your team. So yeah. that's what I look at more than anything else. Do you Are you impactful enough that you're going to be worth $8 million next season? and the next few years beyond that. And if you're putting up, say, 90-plus points on the wing and you're a better two-way player and you're doing everything else, then I don't get too caught up with it as long as you can find another answer down the middle. you know. And what does that do with the Bull Horvat situation? One thing you mentioned about Bull Horvat, Rutherford was to LeBron in the athletic. We still like him. We want to keep him. But but it's clear that we have a valuation, uh, a difference of opinion in the valuation. That's yes. going to be tough. And I know Elliot Friedman's also mentioned that the Canucks are going to have to pay a lot more than they want to keep Brock, uh, to keep a Bull Horvat. So that one's tough, but does that impact your decision? If, if you're looking at it and saying, hey, maybe we're going to keep JT there, does that impact your decision on maybe paying more than you wanted to to keep Bo? Well, what's the really interesting thing Jim Rutherford said to us here on Canuck Central when talking about the Bo Horvat negotiation? Not as much pressure because you have JT playing down the middle. Yes. So that that's that's the thing I can't get out of my head about what Rutherford said to us here, and well, look, the, look, the other thing, the, ultimately, they have to play it, well. It's not to. just about being comfortable with Miller at center. Like we know he can play the position, but where are you getting the most value out of him? Is ultimately what mm-hmm. the Canucks have to know. And uh, yes, he's always been a really great winger. But I think you have to see him back at center at some point soon to know whether or not he can play that 
before you make your decision on Bo Horvat. Yeah, but I think they already have enough information on whether they're comfortable with JT playing center or not. Mm-hmm. I think it's for the time being with how the team is built out and how much they've struggled and you're bringing another center in to stabilize things. And it, the big thing too is if you look at roles for their players, that's the big issue. JT is not a matchup guy. No. Defensively two-way guy. Bo's not really a matchup guy or shouldn't really be a matchup guy. And Pedersen's not at that point yet where you're throwing him out there as a matchup guy, although I think he's the guy that's probably the most potential and best suited for that role on your team. So if you're looking to, you know, throw somebody to the wolves here and there to hold their own, they don't have that line. Yeah. You know, I think that's the other problem with running Pedersen, Horvat, and Miller down the middle. It's not even so much about can you have three centers making a lot of money. I think you can. The question is, do you have three centers that fit down the middle and that can do different types of things to make it worthwhile? Because, hey, if all three of those guys play on your first unit power play, you can have your top three centers playing 19, 20 minutes a game each, mm-hmm. and they're playing on three separate lines. You can easily do that as long as all they all fit on the same power play unit, and there is some value there for some of these guys to play it's on the It's just never PK. really worked. Like even well, la- back problem. to last year when they were healthy. Well, the, the problem for the Canucks is, it has been, it's, that it's an imperfect roster. They have a lot of good players, but yeah. if you start looking at fits and roles and stuff like that, a lot of stuff, it's patchwork. A lot of stuff is like, we got to throw these guys at the problem. You know, Tyler Myers is a go-to shutdown defenseman and go-to penalty killer because... That's who we got. You know what I mean? That's who it is. You know what I mean? And a lot of the times, Bo's been thrown to the wolves the matchup-wise because he's the best you have in that position. But it doesn't put him in the best position to be the best version of himself, for instance. If you're trying to have a cup-winning team and have different lines that can do different things, and that's where where I kind of go with it. You know, like... I don't mind paying Bo seven. If Bo was that two-way player, I would be fine paying him seven and a half, eight. You know, like, I don't mind if the Canucks pay a third line center, so to speak. If he's playing on the first unit power play and still getting 20 minutes a game, don't get caught up in which line he plays. But can you do that with this roster and be successful? And I have my doubts about that. It comes back to the fit in the mix, right? Yeah. And your other cap commitments long-term that uh, may hinder you to do some other things. It's... Like, how do you get better? Because everybody, including this front office, seems to think we have to get better somehow. Yeah. But how do you get better if you're continuously committing more money to the current players that you have? So that's ultimately how difficult this question is still for is for the Canucks and how they go about changing that. And it's why I think, you know, at some point, you're going to have to make a big move. And if it isn't with Bo Horvat, as Jim Rutherford mentioned again today... Who is that player? And looking at Brock Besser I and, and seeing the trade rumors he's been in through basically his entire Canucks career, he makes the most sense as the most expensive player out of that group after your big forwards. Well, like Elliot mentioned that the Canucks or management sat down with agents, players, or yeah. representatives and essentially laid it on the line and said, the coach isn't the only person that could be going here. And if we're making a big move, it could very well be the players. And reportedly, like Friedman mentioned, maybe even uh, talked about some players find themselves finding themselves on waivers, for instance, which is a yeah. pretty big shot. And if you start looking at who are the guys he's been talking about, well, Besser hasn't been playing yes. in the last few games. It's not Besser. But it doesn't mean that at least there hasn't been discussions about you know, like you don't start winning here. Like maybe we do have to do something. Who are the options you're talking about, especially waivers? It comes down to only a couple of guys. Yeah. It's like Tanner Pearson. I think it's really obvious that and Mr. Mr. Underrated kind of becomes that guy. It's it's either him, it could be, and it could even be OEL because if he's not willing to waive his no trade clause and all that sort of stuff, and maybe you feel like 
you might put him on waivers or something mm. like that. Or so those are the types of things that you start looking at here, right? And is that something that they maybe did? And that's usually just this warning sign more than anything else because it's not that easy to make these types of moves. And I know with OEL, it's complicated with the no move clause and all that sort of stuff. But I wonder which of, which the which of the players were which who those players were that they they got that type of a warning. Because well, I'd guess it, it the only candidate. Not a young guy. No, it, it, I mean it, it's not like Hoaglander's still waivers. Like he's not no. waivers eligible. Right and they, now, they, so. they probably didn't say it to Connor Garland. Probably not after he got healthy scratch and Besser and wasn't playing. playing. Well, I mean it's you start going through the list. There's only a couple of candidates. A process of elimination sort of tells us the story, doesn't it? And the guy fought right away, didn't he? <laughs> he did. Potential turning point on the Canuck season. I was waiting for that take. I was waiting for that take. Potential turning point on the Canuck season. All right. Frank Saravalli is going to join us. uh, His take on the Canucks turning it around their way forward and more around the league. That's next on Canuck Central. Did you hear the news? Ten more years of Canucks Central. And Canucks Radio being on Sports at 650. Yes. Part of the big deal today and the major news announcement that the Canucks and uh, Rogers made together. Sorry it wasn't a trade. But really, anytime an organization makes an announcement like that 24 hours ahead, it's usually not a player personnel move and it's usually not a, you know, Mm -hmm. um, coaching change or management change. Yeah. Usually, the way they make those announcements. Usually, those announcements are off, off ice related, and it is big news. I mean, for us, of course, selfishly, but you know, the ten-year deal for TV, radio, and building naming rights. Like, yeah, this is a, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's a it's a really big deal. I'd imagine uh, a few shekels were exchanged. I uh, I would imagine, but yeah, for, uh, what a way for Michael Doyle to start his new uh, presidency <laughs> uh, for the organization on the business side of things. Well, probably the most. Uh, the most fan-worthy comment that came out of it because, hey, you know, it's big. You get to watch your Canucks on radio and TV <laughs> uh, for, for a lot of years. That's great. Um, Michael Doyle said there are plans to change the seats yes. at Rogers Arena. More renovations coming at Rogers Arena as yeah. well. The seats are something that... It's 27 years old. Like, where does the time yeah, go? Time goes by fast, man. But it has been hinted, Yeah, uh, the seats changing and stuff like that. And I've heard about it as well. I mean, it probably for next year obviously or the year beyond that but yeah it's coming and then uh, there'll probably be more stuff too i wouldn't be surprised if the screens change too yeah modernize the building a little bit yeah uh so uh something to look forward to at rogers arena dan richo satyar shaw this is uh canuck central every monday we have our monday hockey insider join us it's frank saravalli of the daily face-off and he joins us now thanks for this frank i mean uh it's been a lot of uh, negativity around the Canucks, but they've uh, they've won two in a row. So it's been a it's been a complete one eighty in this town. Uh, you know what I heard, and and I feel like the collective organization and fan base has a little sigh of relief. Um, fair to say, I would imagine. I, I just like maybe I won't get asked as many Canucks questions across the country as I do my hits this week. Across the country, no, and I, we're going to change the tenor of our questions from what are the Canucks selling to what are the Canucks buying after two wins. So, oh! No. <laughs> well, Trader Jim finally came out last week. They make the, the, the couple of moves. We haven't seen either player 
uh, play yet. But it's pretty clear, like one thing that uh, about the slow start to the season and and maybe part of the injuries that crisis that they've had early on this season too, sort of forced Patrick Alvine's hand into finally making some kind of move. I mean, yes and no. I feel like they also thought there was real value here. Um, you know, if there's a chance to improve your team, maybe find a bit of a longer-term asset and rebuild Ethan Bear into the player that I think a lot of people thought that he might be. Um, given really what you had to give up, it's worth the risk. I mean, the fact that Carolina was even willing to retain 40%, I think, is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um I, you know, clearly the Canucks were interested in Ethan Bear going back a while, I think, to the summer. Um, the ask had changed pretty dramatically. I, I was told that when they initially engaged in conversation, Carolina wanted Nils Hoglander back. And so you could see why that was kind of a non-starter for Vancouver at the moment. And then to sort of be patient, play it out, and then end up getting the, the player, the defenseman you liked in Bear. Um, and, you know, maybe a little throw in in Lane Peterson. Um, you know, to me, I think that it's, it's a win for a fifth-round pick. Well, I mean, Bear does have some, and that's the big play here. I know a lot of people still believe he can be maybe a top-four defenseman. We'll see how that goes. And the other move they made was getting Jeff Studnika from the Boston Bruins. And it's clear that these moves, as much as they are to help this season, they still have a longer-term kind of picture in mind. And as much as you know, we're looking at what they may do with the main roster and all that, and, and perhaps potentially they make a couple big moves before the season is over, should we expect them to take more flyers on guys like, say, Jeff Studnika? as the season goes on? I mean, if the acquisition price is right, why not? I mean, there's few teams that are really in the position to try. Um, You know, then mostly they're teams with lesser expectations than where the Canucks are at at the moment. So uh, to me, I I don't see any reason why you wouldn't uh, see if you could rehab a player that you really liked at, at some point, whether it was through the scouting process and the draft which may be the case with Patrick Alvine, given his investment in the draft previously, um, to maybe find a player that you can rehab his image and turn him into something. I still think the biggest question is, you know, what what core piece does Patrick Alvine end up moving? Because um, it does feel like that that shoe is going to drop at some point, and maybe that's an evaluation that's still going on, and it's probably uh, something that, matters on what sort of offers come around you know i even today you Man, look i at, thought we were changing the tenor of the conversation <laughs> well you know two wins doesn't make a season here frank but it's no, it doesn't but like what you you guys said what they're buying not selling <laughs> <laughs> i i don't think they ever were completely sold on the core of this roster though i think that's you can go back and and you know a lot of the conversations we've had with them going back to january february you know it, it still seems like well, the the point is Patrick Alvine isn't done here. Maybe just uh, bigger moves could be coming down the line at some point. Uh, look, that's fair. And I think no one's celebrating any mm-hmm. victories. There's yeah. no flags waving in, in Vancouver at this point, given where the team went and given the long road that remains ahead. You know, it's interesting about the core because I think going back to the end of last season, the conversation totally changed just as we were – joking about the tenor of this one because there was no real belief in the core at least it was very much shaken going back to December when the changes were made in the front office and I think there was this sort of um, 
you know, I don't know if you want to call it question mark or quasi belief, whatever you want, however you want to phrase it, that they were thinking maybe we do have something here. And I think it's too early to write that off, given that. And and I think that going back to the conversation we had last week or two weeks ago about this core in general, if the Canucks do in fact begin to strip pieces off this roster and and go to tear it down. It's, it's never going to be a complete down-to-the-studs rebuild where you mm-hmm. go fully scorched earth because there are too many pieces in this group that people really see value in and, and talent. And there are, you know, decisions to be rendered. Um, but when you have Thatcher Demko and you have Quinn Hughes, like I think there's some larger question marks about still about Elias Pettersson, uh, still about uh, Brock Besser, and then the biggest – decision in the short term and for the long term is what's going on with both that mm-hmm. so there's multi-layers to this and I, I don't think it's quite as easy as saying they don't believe in the core no and you know I think it's, it is it is a complicated situation overall there are pieces they want to build around but one thing Rutherford talked about was they're looking to build they're looking to add so as much as people are talking about rebuild they're looking to make the team better and that means sometimes you do have to move a player, like you mentioned. But we, we were kind of joking, like you said, about adding. But I wouldn't be surprised if they're looking at players who could be available, who are maybe, say, 24, 25, and then work out somewhere else. It does involve maybe shifting some money one way or another. We've seen Rutherford do those types of deals when he was with the Pittsburgh Penguins in the past. We've seen them pursue those types of options. It wouldn't surprise me if they look to do those types of things as well. So it's not necessarily about trying to get draft picks only, but making hockey deals that keep you young but also make you better maybe god i love hockey deals like it it gets me excited first off second <laughs> like what other kind of deal is there like, no exactly it's great uh but so sat like okay walk me down your path like what like give me a type of like and i'm not saying a player that the canucks would definitely be interested in but give me the type of piece that you're talking about to help my, wrap my brain around it. So I'm, I'm looking at a team like, say, the um, New York Islanders. Look at a guy like, say, and and for instance, who's 25 years old. It's obviously not quite working out. There are a couple players on Vancouver where maybe they are getting paid a little bit less. You look at a guy like Tanner Pearson, for instance. He does kind of fit the type of guy that Lou Lamorello has liked in the past. And What's that like, another old player to add to the Islanders roster? <laughs> yeah, and you know, he's, he's down with that sort of stuff. But I mean, Old that, player does the little things well. Yeah, yes. or, or whatever it is. But like, uh, whether it's a defenseman, whether it's Tyler Myers to a team for a guy who's maybe paid a little bit less but doesn't have quite the upside yet, but something along those lines. Is exactly, like, I'm glad that you spelled that out because like, Beauvillier, for me, is like a perfect example of a player worth taking a shot on. Mm-hmm. Clearly has tons of talent up to the expectations, at least in terms of uh, point production relative to contract, and was at one point seen as a player that could be a potential part of a solution. And so that age range, that it sort of fits the Jim Rutherford mold that he laid out, what did he say, you know, 25, 26 and under? Yeah. Um, and the big part of that is, like, also potentially under team control for a while. Like, I would also be looking at um, RFAs or potential RFAs in a year's time that uh, could have, you know, potentially higher qualifying offers, whatever the number may be, where you can bring in an influx in talent and maybe offload a piece on your team that – you know, could be a value to another 
for the position that that team is at in their competitive cycle. Let's go across Canada. Um, uh, What's going on with the Maple Leafs? Feels kind of like, even though the record isn't nearly as bad, the conversation that we're having to start this week isn't all that dissimilar than the one that you guys have been engulfed (laughs) in in the last couple weeks in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And a big reason is really just the pressure. Like, I can't remember a team that was 500 heading into a game in late October that obviously there's expectations, but to think that so much felt like it was riding on that game against the Anaheim Ducks, maybe the worst team in, in the league and the team statistically offensive, and you're up two goals in the third on the road in a game that you you said your player said needed to be a character statement game. Like, where does how does that happen? Where does that come from 10 games into the season? And where do the Leafs go from here? I truly believe that Sunday's game was an inflection point for Toronto. And I think watching the reactions on the bench, and it's always dangerous to make too much of these types of situations when you know you've got your coach and Sheldon Keefe very clearly calling out a player in Mitch Marner but when you look at basically the way that it unfolded mm. I had a hard time going back today and thinking how many times has a coach pointed at a player on the bench let alone an 11 million dollar player in this league who's been calls him out and then eventually, not maybe not tomorrow or next week, but eventually lives to see the other side of it in, with the same team, in the same role. It doesn't happen often. And when I say inflection point, I don't mean that he was in the wrong doing so or that Mitch Marner didn't deserve to be held accountable for his two egregious turnovers. Of course he did. But the point being, it just speaks to the overall environment, like Sheldon Keith calling out his team on night one after a loss to the Montreal Canadiens. Then what he said after a few days later, and then walking it back after that. Mm-hmm. And then that, it just like I, sits here and points at the coach and, and says, oh, it, it's going to be him. But it certainly feels like there's a whole heck of a lot going on with that Toronto Maple Leafs organization really from top to bottom. It is really interesting because a guy like Sheldon Keefe, I mean, obviously he's a good coach. That's why he's in the National Hockey League. They've had success in the regular season. But it really looks like he really looks like a guy at times who's really learning on the job to handle NHL players. And that's not a bad thing. That's I'm, I'm sure that's what happens with a lot of coaches. And maybe it's not quite as visible and quite not, not quite as the spotlight when you are the coach of the Maple Leafs but sometimes when you have these errors and you have to go back and you have to kind of walk things back I mean at some point you lose credibility and I know these guys don't want to move off the coach but man like they're looking like they have to make a really tough decision soon whether that's to trade a player or give these guys another coach well I tend to view it a little bit differently that I don't know that it necessarily has to do with Sheldon Keith learning on the job or learning how to handle players have mistakes been made? Sure. To me, I to an overall lack of accountability with this team. That they've sort of been, whether it's been playoff failures or um, whatever situation that team has been in, the players have always seemingly gotten off the hook. And you think back to even just the contract negotiations that they've been to. You know, Mitch Marner grinding the team for every last dollar. William Nylander grinding the team for every last dollar. 
the players have always won. And why would that be any different in this case? The players, it, it's, it's more or less a country club to play in. Um, yeah, there's focal points and attention on your team, but you've got everything handed to you there. It's, it's the easiest place to play in the league in terms of how they treat you. They, do, they hold your hand and do everything for you. So I think there's a, an interesting spot where that's, that's, why, that's why I framed it as an inflection point. Which, which direction are we going? Mm-hmm. Are we going to let these players off the hook again for a poor start? for a team that should be playing way better than they are, or are we going to go in a different direction and change the coach again? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not in there every day and I don't know the right answer and I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm, I'm surprised at how quickly they've arrived at this point, considering, you know, this team was in the same spot last year with the same record, but it, their play on the ice dictates that what we're feeling now is so totally different. Yeah, and I think it's almost, um, I don't know, from my perspective, it's felt as though Kyle Dubas has, has gotten away <laughs> with a lot or that the, 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 the heaviest criticism never really lands on him. And I look at the, the roster right now, Frank, I mean, it doesn't look better than it was a year ago. And the bottom six certainly isn't better. He spent a bunch of money you know, for a team that's it with every dollar that they've got. That Cali Yarncroft contract already looks uh, like a bit of an eyesore. I mean, it it just felt like Dubas has, has always gotten away from criticism more than others. And I, I don't know if I'm I'm still ready to ready to do that. You didn't even mention the goaltending. Like, well, yeah, that, 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 there's the obvious one, yeah. Flat out, Eric Schalgren is not an NHL goaltender right now. No. He may be at some point in his career. He's not ready. Look at his team. And then, you know, again, I don't have a crystal ball, but the Leafs, and, and certainly myself and a lot of other people that watch this league very closely, if you were saying that you think you could get through the season without Matt Murray being injured, like I'd ask you what you've been watching. Did you review his medical records before mm-hmm. he traded? Because he's been hurt all the time. He can't stay healthy. And that means you need to have a good number three ready. And Shaw, and I know number threes can be hard to come by in this league because of waivers and whatever else, but that feels like a big bone of contention this season. The Leafs are in this spot enough playing just about as well as he can play statistically at any stretch in his career. So then you add in the issues up front um, with their cap situation. Their issues on the back end, that it feels like a, a defense core that looks and feels really old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these little wrinkles and connections. You mentioned Sheldon Keith. Uh, um, we talked about him in the Susan. Well, like, what about Callie Yarncroke? When Kyle Dubas was an agent, he was part of the team that represented Callie Yarncroke. There's all these sort of things that are interwoven into this that I think everything's up for question at this point, and, and rightfully so. Now, uh, as as far as the opponent that the Canucks are facing tomorrow, the New Jersey Devils, they're interesting because when the season started, uh, they lost a couple in a row and fans were chanting, fire Lindy, fire Lindy, and all those sort of things. And since then, they've been one of the hottest teams in the National Hockey League. Uh, How do you view the New Jersey Devils? And do you think Lindy Ruff at this point has kind of regained the faith of uh, the fan base? Not sure about the fan base, but I think that he has the support of management, which really is all that matters. I view the Devils as a team that's vastly improved, and I had Devils GM Tom Fitzgerald on my podcast today to do a deep dive 
on where that team is at, where they've grown, and he spoke about their culture change. He felt like the things that Miles Wood said two games in or one game in was really healthy for this team. We're not going to tolerate average play, mediocrity, and another losing season. They have expectations. Their team has improved on the back end. They're way more efficient coming out of their own end. John Marino has helped. Dougie Hamilton seems like he's settled in. I think Siegenthaler and Severson are probably a little bit underrated in terms of the things that they can provide in terms of efficiency. And up front, they've seen continued growth from their forwards. When you look at Jesper Brad and the nine-game heater that he's been on to start the year, you look at Jack Hughes and the 79 points that he has in the last 82 games, you look at um, you know these different guys, Andre Palat's out injured, and they're waiting for a reevaluation on him. Um, I believe he's with the team in Vancouver. Um, that they're in a spot where they can continue to grow. They've got building blocks in place that they may not get over the hump this year and make it into the playoffs, but I would bet money on them being damn close in the 90 to 95 point range uh, when it's all said and done. And, and really one of those teams that has a shot to be in that competitive window for the next five years, given what they have, if they can solve some of the inconsistencies in net. Last thing before we let you go, were, uh, were you a fan of uh, what you saw from Mullet Arena? You know, I was um it, it looks beautiful like the venue seems to be like perfectly set like it's going to be one of the best college hockey venues in the country bar none um i you know i i'm curious to see what the player reaction is like once the annex or whatever they have is is done with the player locker rooms and all that um and until then i think everyone's kind of curious ryan reeves what did he call it poo poo yeah he said i, I felt like the the visiting room here was kind of poo poo so We'll see. Let's see how in the annex when they come back in December after this four-game swing at home, and then we'll make some judgments. But got to get some steel in the ground, got to get some shovels in the ground to get the permanent arena fix up in Arizona because this cannot last forever. Yeah, it's heading to uh, another one of those uh, referendums. It feels like the story's gone on forever because it has. Uh, thanks for the. It may not end soon either. Like, when's that referendum? Next November? <laughs> yeah, who knows? Sometime in 2023. We'll keep an eye out. Uh, thanks for this, Frank. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. There is uh, Frank Valley joining us uh, here on Canucks Central. Mullet Arena, the talk of the NHL this weekend, Sat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> An NHL team playing in a, in a college rink. But, yeah, but apparently what Pierre-Luc Dubois said, the ice was the best in the league and, you know, and all I that guess. sort of stuff or Should whatever be. it is. It's, yeah. a small, it's a small it's a small building. Rink. It's like 3,000 people fit into that building. What a joke. Not even, right? 2,500, yeah. is it? <laughs> the the dressing rooms are hilarious. Hey, hey, good good for Arizona. Looks like they're getting closer to maybe having a uh, full time building solution. I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, a referendum. A referendum. <laughs> yeah. No, d- don't see it. Don't see it. Um, but yeah, on, on Vancouver it was interesting. I mean, I think the hockey deal stuff, and we just kind of, you know, I just threw out the Bavillier thing. Yes. He asked me for an example. I just kind of threw out. You know, he's a he's a fast player. Obviously, you know. Pearson is probably not going to be the valuation, but the point being, I could see them looking at those types of deals, yeah. you know, for all the talk that we're having about accumulated draft picks, and I'm all for that plan, but as far as trying to predict what could happen, I wonder if what they might try to do with those types of players is make the type of deal where money in, money out, 
and it's a guy that maybe fits a bit differently, helps you a little bit. I mean, go through the history. Rutherford's made those types of deals in the past, yep. you know, and Pearson for good Branson. Yeah. And, you know, you see the haggling when they acquired him mm-hmm. and, and different things that they've done. So I can see them pursuing or at least exploring those types of deals and it's to get the right type of fit for this team because they kept t- they keep talking about building. I know they want more picks and I, they want more things, but they keep talking about building on this roster and, and making it better and those sorts of things and filling gaps. So even if you start looking at, let's say for argument's sake, they look at trading Bo Horvat. Of course, they want a young asset, but do they start looking at, is there a young player on that team that we'd like to have back in return that helps us maybe? Yeah. It's, uh, that's the tough part about retooling on the fly though. Yeah. Um, because some, almost any time when you're trading the best player in the deal, you're, you're not going to win that deal. Even if you do get the futures, it's more about what you do with the open cap space and what you potentially, like if you land that big draft pick or the big asset. Cause right now teams are not as willing to give you draft picks for players. Yes. You know, maybe in a year's time, it might be a bit easier, especially with Myers and guys like Pearson. But if you're really looking to make something happen right now, those are the types of deals you might be looking at. Uh, We'll keep this conversation going. Also, let's get a scouting report on the two newest Canucks, Jack Studnika and Ethan Bear. We'll go to Boston and Carolina to check in on what those players are about before they suit up for the Vancouver Canucks. That's next on Canucks Central.